Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 18, verses 15 through 18 and 25 through 27. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is God's word. Good morning. I hope that you had wonderful Christmas celebrations. I'm looking forward to digging into God's word with you today. Will you please bow your heads and pray with me? Father in heaven, will you please show us wonderful things in your word this morning? Challenge us, comfort us, remind us of your love. And may we see your glory in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We just heard the infamous account of Peter denying Jesus. Jesus called it, you know. They were in the upper room for the Last Supper, and Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to fall away. And in John chapter 13, verse 37, Peter promises, I will lay down my life for you. To which Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, before we say, silly Peter, there you go, putting your foot in your mouth again, as he's known to do at times, we need to remember that this past year we've had our own Peter moments too. We've had times when we had an opportunity to stand up for Christ and instead we've not been faithful to him. What was your last Peter moment? Did the rooster crow just after you got done chewing out one of your direct reports at the office? Did the rooster crow after you got done yelling at your kids? Did the rooster crow when you chickened out at the opportunity to share the gospel with your neighbor? If we think back, I'm sure we can all think of times when we had an opportunity to be faithful to Christ and we blew it. When we 
blow those opportunities, two things happen. One is that our relationship with Jesus is, is kind of cut off. It's not that he completely disowns us, but we don't walk in as close a relationship with him. After Peter denies Jesus, he goes away and weeps bitterly in solitude. Our relationship is not as close. We don't experience the kind of fellowship with Jesus that we desire. Also, when we have a Peter moment of denying Christ, either through our words or through our actions, we step away from the mission. We stop serving Jesus with all of our heart. Satan likes to use those opportunities to remind us that we're not good enough, that God could never use us to help anybody or to lead anybody to Jesus. Now, luckily for us, our pastors this morning is not John chapter 18, but John chapter 21, where Jesus restores Peter back to himself. And he does it in a very particular way, a very interesting way. As we read through this account, what we're going to see is that at the same time, Jesus restores Peter back both to fellowship and to his mission. Not one, then the other, but both of them together, both of them at the same exact time. So if you've truly turned from your sin, you've asked for forgiveness of your last Peter moment that maybe you had in 2012, Jesus wants to simultaneously re-enlist you in his mission to build his church, to spread his kingdom, to share the gospel. The mission of the gospel is too urgent for Jesus to put his soldiers in solitary confinement. He needs us out on the mission field, which is right underneath our feet. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through John chapter 21, and we're going to look at to see how Jesus turns chapter 18, Peter, denying Peter, into an Acts chapter 2, Peter, a Peter on mission. We'll see how he can do that in our lives and in our hearts as well. Jesus can restore you both to fellowship and to mission for him and with him. That's what John chapter 21 is about. So first point for this morning, John chapter 21 Jesus restores our fellowship with him by calling us back to his mission. He calls us back into fellowship through the call to mission. So John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias and revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So the disciples, they're hanging out. They've seen Jesus as resurrected a couple times already. And even though this total universal cosmic event of the resurrection has ushered in God's kingdom in a kind of already but not yet way and all of human history has taken a huge turn, they still have to eat. So they go fishing to get some food. And they're up all night trying to catch some fish 
and they don't catch a single thing. One commentator points out that the disciples in the Gospels never catch a single fish without Jesus' divine intervention. It's probably a good thing they get called out of the fishing business into the ministry. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, to understand what just happened here, you have to understand a little bit about fishing practices back in those New Testament days. Probably what these seven fishermen were doing together is they're probably in two different boats, and between the two boats would be perpendicular nets underneath in the water. They would have little floaty devices on top, and then they would have... uh, anchors or weights at the bottom of the net so that they would be perpendicular under the water. And these nets would be drawn between the two boats. And then as soon as they found a school of fish, what then they would do is they would bring the boats together and closing these perpendicular nets around the fish, closing them in, and then they would be able to take their other net, cast it in, and easily pull in the fish that they had enclosed between the boats. So when Jesus says, throw your net on the right side of the boat, the other side of the boat, the side of the boat that does not have any nets to enclose the school of fish in together, well, then we see that as far as these fishermen were concerned, this would be a stroke of pure luck. It would be kind of like telling Jay Cutler at the 50-yard line, hey, Jay, close your eyes and Chuck the ball to the end zone and you will find a wide open receiver and you'll score a touchdown. But this is a miracle. What In a fishing practice sort of way, they should have never caught anything. And they caught more fish than they could barely pull into the boats. Verse 7. The miracle betrays the identity of the person on the beach. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Witnessing the miracle catch, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the apostle John, who is writing this gospel, immediately recognizes Who is yelling from the beach? It's Jesus. And Peter jumps into the water because he's so excited that his Lord is here and he's going to swim to greet the Lord. And the rest of the disciples drag this huge catch of fish up to shore. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Eric, okay, you said this is a passage about Peter being called back to mission, being restored back to the mission, but all you're talking about so far is fishing. Exactly. What happened the very first time that Peter was called to the mission of the gospel? In a lot of ways, chapter 21 is similar to Luke 5. 
Jesus here is reenacting his call on Peter to the mission of the gospel as a way of calling him back from his denial of chapter 18. Look at the similarities between Luke 5. I don't have time to look at Luke 5 this morning, but let me tell you some of these similarities that we have between these two stories. Both narratives focus on Peter. Both scenes take play at the, scene of, at the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee. In both instances, Peter is with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Both times they fished all night and didn't even catch a minnow. And both times, Jesus tells them, throw the net in one more time. And they pull in a miraculous catch. Jesus is calling Peter again to be a fisher of men. He's calling him back to the mission, the mission of the gospel, despite his denial, despite his failure. So they pull up on the shore, and what we see is, as soon as he's called back to the mission of the gospel, he's also called back to fellowship. So Jesus is preparing a meal on the beach, and meals, even more than they are in all cult- our culture, back then in, in their culture, it was meant to be a time of significant, intimate fellowship. So we pick up the story in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples. Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's interesting. The last time we saw a charcoal fire, Peter was warming himself at that fire, denying his Lord. He swims up to the shore. He sees another charcoal fire. And on this fire, there's a filet being seared on the grill. And there's more room on the grate for some of the fish that they just caught being restored back into fellowship with his Lord. John finishes this episode the same way he started it, calling this a revelation of Jesus. This is the third time he revealed himself. So this call to fellowship and to mission is bracketed by talking about that Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples. In his post-resurrection accounts, Jesus was not immediately recognizable to his followers. There's something more known about who Jesus is. He is the suffering servant who, who died and was rose again, but yet in his resurrection state, there's a lot more still to be known about who this person is. Jesus reveals himself as their Lord. Now, just like these six other disciples are witnessing Peter's restoration here in John chapter 21, John has recorded this story so that we can see this happen too. This is an encouragement for us. that In all of our Peter moments, there's an opportunity to be restored. There's forgiveness that we can have. But that forgiveness, that restoration is a two-part restoration. It's not 
only to fellowship with Jesus. It's also a call to the mission for Jesus as well. That Jesus wants his people to come to him for forgiveness and then to be sent out in proclaiming the gospel. Now in verses 1 through 14, Jesus worked from mission to fellowship. Catchers of men to a meal on the beach. In these next verses, verses 15 through 17, he's going to flip it around. He's going to start with fellowship and then work towards Peter's mission. So verses 15 through 17, Jesus restores our love for him by calling us back to the mission. So first our fellowship, now our love. Jesus restores our love for him by calling us back to the mission. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Jesus could have asked Peter a lot of different questions besides whether or not Peter loved him. Could have said, Did you repent of what you did? Could have said to Peter, Hey, Peter, did you ask your accountability partner to ask you more regularly how you're doing on being faithful in times when it's hard to stand up for your faith? He didn't say, hey, Peter, did you read some scripture passages about standing up for your faith and put those principles into practice? And did you memorize some of those verses so the next time you're in that situation, you can do what's right? I mean, those are good things to do, but they're not good to do by themselves. See, by themselves, our activities of spiritual exercises can actually be counterproductive. By themselves, if we don't get at the heart of the issue, the heart of our sin, they're not going to help us grow in love for Jesus. We need to address our heart when we are being restored to Christ. Christmas morning, I piled my family into our car to drive to Detroit so we could celebrate the holiday with my side of the family. And we didn't get very far before I realized that our car was having a lot of trouble accelerating and changing gears. So we do a U-turn, come back, pull up in the driveway, turn the car off. I walk over to the front of the car to check things out. And what I see in stark contrast to our black asphalt driveway is a fast-growing puddle of pink transmission fluid. Luckily, Josh Stringer loaned us his car because he was flying out of town and we were able to actually still get to Detroit Christmas night. But with the broken-down transmission, it would have done me no good to start waxing the outside of the car even though that might have made our car look nice and shiny. 
It would have done me no good to open the doors and vacuum the upholstery, even though it would have made the car look a lot cleaner. Our two-year-old's Cheerio crumbs would have finally gotten off the floor. That would have been great. What needs to happen to my car is for someone to get under the hood. That's what is going to fix the car. Jesus is going under the hood with Peter. Jesus demands that we allow him under the hood. That he can get into our hearts. That he can fix the sin problem that's in there. That's where our sin is. It's in our heart. So he can restore us both to fellowship and to mission. So Jesus aims at the heart. He says, Peter, tell me about your love. The way he asked Peter this question is is, uh, a little bit ambiguous. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? What, What are the these? What is Jesus referring to when he says more than these? Is he saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love these tools for fishing? Peter wanted to go fishing. Is he saying, do you love me more than you love these disciples, the other six people there on the beach enjoying the meal? Jesus is probably asking Peter this. Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? You see, when they were up in that upper room during the Last Supper, here's what Jesus said after, or here's what Peter said after Jesus said, you will all fall away from me. Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter makes a claim that he loves Jesus more than any of the other disciples. Jesus, if anybody's going to stay true to you, if anybody's going to love you, no matter what, it's me. And Peter denies Christ. Do you love me more than everyone else? Peter's answer is well stated. He doesn't overstate his love, showing Jesus his I heart Jesus bumper sticker. He doesn't understate his love either. He doesn't say, well, you know, Jesus, I I could never love you as much as I should or as much as I want to. He doesn't understate it. He replies to Jesus' question in a remarkably Christ-centered way. Look at his response. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know. Not self-reliant anymore. He's relying on Christ. Jesus, you know my heart. You know what's in there. You know I love you. Now, as soon as Peter affirms his love, as soon as there's that reconnection of fellowship between Peter and Jesus, Jesus goes right to the mission. Not only a call to fellowship, but a call to mission. One and the same thing happening. He says, okay, Peter, feed my lambs. Jesus is restoring Peter from fellowship now to mission. And the shift in the metaphor is now from fish to sheep. Not evangelism, but building up the church, helping the church, edifying the church, pastoring the church. Perhaps because of a sin in your past, you feel like there's nothing that you could do to ever help another Christian. You have nothing to offer 
You're disqualified. You can't help because you've messed up yourself. You wonder, how can I disciple someone else? I struggle to spend every day myself reading my Bible and praying, even for five minutes. You wonder, how can I, how can I counsel a, a young dating couple when, when I was in my dating and engaged years, I messed up physically with the person I was dating and engaged to. Peter spent a lot of time calling Christians to faithfulness, faithfulness to Christ, even though he himself had his moment where he was not faithful to him. Why can he do that? Because he's been restored. He's been forgiven. That's what we're witnessing right here in this story. This conversation's practice. This conversation proves you can be used, that Jesus wants to use you, that he will use you if you demonstrate love for him and ask for forgiveness and turn in repentance. Desire him and his glory, laying your sins at the foot of the cross and getting back to the mission. Well, Jesus asks Peter the same question a second time. He asks Peter the same question a third time. Do you love me? Before you start to wonder if ears work very well on resurrection bodies, I want you to know that Jesus has heard Peter loud and clear. He's asking this question three times for a reason. And it's interesting that at the third time is the time that Peter is grieved. Did you see that? He was grieved in his heart because Jesus said to him the third time, Do you love me? See, when it comes up the third time, Peter's clued in onto what Jesus is doing. Just as he denied Jesus three times, Jesus is asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus is restoring Peter's love all the way. And we're not necessarily people that like to repent of our sins all the way down. Because when we chase our sins down to the root in our heart, it is rotten and ugly, and it does not make us feel very good. But uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says that godly grief leads to repentance. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Don't be afraid to trace your sin all the way down to the rotten root. That's where the root gets pulled up. That's where Jesus restores you in relationship to him. That's where Jesus sends you back out on what he has called you to do. Bringing in people to the church and helping the people who are in the church. So Jesus restores our fellowship. Jesus restores our love. Now, lastly, thirdly, starting in verse 18, we see that Jesus restores our willingness to sacrifice for him by calling us back to the mission. He restores our willingness to sacrifice for him by calling us back to the mission. Denying Jesus stems from an unwillingness to sacrifice. When we are in that moment of temptation, we have a choice to make. Either we will deny ourselves and our sinful desires so we can be faithful to Jesus, Or we will deny Jesus so that we can satisfy our sinful desires. 
That's a choice we have to make. And when we have a willingness to sacrifice for Christ, then we will say no to the opportunity to deny and yes to the opportunity to be faithful. Those who want a loving fellowship with Jesus know that there will be times when they have to sacrifice for him. Remember what Jesus said. He said, if anybody wants to follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. The opportunity for sacrifice came to Peter, and Peter denied his Savior. And now Peter's willingness, his call to sacrifice, will be restored. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus points out four things about Peter's sacrifice in these verses. First, the time of Peter's sacrifice. When Peter grows old, there's going to be a time when he is going to be called to a huge sacrifice. Second, the manner of his sacrifice. You will stretch out your hands. This was common, a common phrase back then to talk about crucifixion. Jesus is predicting that Peter will die a martyr's death by crucifixion. This is supported by Clement of Rome writing in AD 96 and Tertullian writing in AD 212 that, Jesus, or that Peter died by crucifixion. Third, we see the purpose, the purpose for Peter's sacrifice, that by this manner of death, he would glorify God. There's a whole sermon right there. In our day and age, so many people, we we think that God's blessings are shining upon us because we are being successful, we are being blessed materially. Yet so much of the gospel and so much of the Bible says that Those who glorify God are living a life of sacrifice and suffering. Fourth, we see the command. The command, despite the sacrifice, follow me. The follow me connects the sacrifice to the mission. Just like at the Sea of Galilee a few years ago, Jesus called Peter to follow him. Now he says, follow me again, but it's got a new connotation now. Peter is not just going to follow Jesus as a disciple. He's going to follow Jesus all the way to the cross as a martyr. So it turns out that Peter will fulfill what he said at the Last Supper. I will lay down my life for you. He will do that. Not only will Peter proclaim the message of the cross in a unique way, he will embody the message of the cross. Here's the thing about the cross. At the cross, Jesus was treated like someone who denied God. And at the cross, we, through faith in Christ's death and resurrection, are treated as people who can have Christ's faithfulness, regarded as faithful as Christ. But more than that, the the cross has power. The cross has power to turn cowardly deniers of Jesus into courageous, faithful martyrs 
for Jesus. That's the power of the cross. Now, not everyone is called to give up their life for Jesus. We see this in in the next verse, verse 20. Now, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. John was not called to die a martyr's death. Peter was. So the question for us today is this. No matter what level of sacrifice we've been called to, how do we embrace that call to sacrifice for Jesus in a way that will glorify him, that will glorify God? I think three ways that we can see from this passage. First, expect suffering. Expect that you will be called to sacrifice. All of Jesus' are called, all of Jesus' disciples are called to suffer for him, to sacrifice for him. It's been planned according to God's sovereign will. Peter faced it. John faced it. We have faced it, and we will continue to face it. Expect to sacrifice for Jesus. Second, be content with the amount of sacrifice that Jesus has called you to. It might be more than somebody else. It might be less. Whatever he's called you to, be content with that. Peter's wondering about, well, what about John? What, what, what is he going to face? Jesus says, don't worry about that. You follow me. You follow the path that I have set out for you. Don't worry about anybody else. And we know that John faced his fair share of suffering. When he was writing the book of Revelation, chapter 1, how does he introduce himself? Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. It does not sound very comfortable. We We will all be called to make certain sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. Thirdly, Fulfill God's call on your life despite the sacrifice. See, Peter here, just a little bit after Easter, he is told that he is going to die a martyr's death. And that time did not come for another three decades. For for about 30 more years, he fulfilled his call, followed Jesus, went after the mission, preached, shared the gospel, did what he was called to do knowing what laid ahead for him. Not necessarily the exact time it would come, knowing that it was there. But he was faithful to his call anyway. God will use you as you willingly, lovingly share the gospel with others. We need to do that despite the sacrifices we know we will be called to make. If Peter can be restored back to fellowship, and back to the mission. So can we. So can you. No matter what you did in 2012, or no matter what you did even before 2012, whatever is in our past, it can be forgiven and restored so we can be set and sent out by Jesus. Maybe there's something in your past that has kept you from even coming into fellowship with Jesus in the first place. 
You think that your sin is so bad that he would never forgive you and that he would never want you. Come to him this morning. This passage shows that any sinner can spread the message of his love. That Jesus would love to spend a morning having breakfast at dawn on the beach with any sinner who turns from their sin and puts their faith in him, trusts in him. Whatever your big sin is, lay it at the cross. Return to fellowship with Jesus and get after the mission. Jesus, we thank you for the forgiveness, for the restoration that we have in you. Will you please set College Church on your mission this year as we turn from our sin, as we enjoy fellowship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.